Have you ever seen a grown man throw an absolute temper tantrum? It's embarrassing, isn't it? It's a little bit before my time, but John McEnroe had his breakdown moment in Wimbledon. You cannot be serious. I don't remember that. I was pretty young at the time. But I do remember watching March Madness. I remember uh, Bobby Knight in basketball. And I remember what you probably remember that he is most famous for when he threw a chair onto the middle of the court. He was the coach of the Hoosiers in the 80s, and they were a very good team. They had won two national championships. It looked like they were on their way at the start of the season. They were on track for a third, but they had lost six out of nine games. They were not looking very good. In this particular game, they were against Purdue. It started out really badly. There were six fouls called on his team in the first five minutes of the game, and Indiana's head coach lost his mind. Some of you might remember this. You were watching it or you've seen videos of it. If you're young enough, and many of you are, you're going to have to Google this after the service, but you might need to make sure that you got your explicit filter on in order to watch the madness that ensued. The man just absolutely loses it in front of a national TV audience. So with Freak of profanities, he is cursing out the referees. He is uh, so angry that now he's gotten a technical foul. And when the Purdue uh, player goes up to make the shots, he's going up to make the shots there on the foul line, he launches his chair across the center of the court, spinning and spinning and twirling across, sliding right across the free throw line into uh, this whole room full, excuse me, this whole uh, panel of of, uh, photographers that are there on the far side, and they are just getting every moment of it. The coach is ejected from the game, no surprise there, but the real punishment for Knight was that that season, anyway, continued to just spin and spiral out of control. And throughout the remainder of that season, they lost game after game and didn't make any of the predictions that they thought. They later got their act together. But for the remainder of Knight's tenure there at Indiana, all of the chairs were mounted on the side of the court. It's hard to look away when someone acts like a child. That's exactly what the prophet Jonah does here in Jonah chapter 4, this Old Testament book that is still very alive and very applicable to today. And it is, it is arguably the most embarrassing chapter in all of Scripture. Good morning again. My name's Pastor Milo. Some of you are watching this from home later at another time or you're watching online. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. If you're in the room, we're so glad you're here as well. If you're listening to this later, if you're here in the room, you need to know I'm, I'm glad that you're here because we've got some good news to share with you this morning. Jesus is on the throne. And that is good news. That is good news because it changes the way that we live. Because he died so that he could be on that throne for our sake. So he died so that we might live. And boy, do we need him. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're kind of a mess. Look at the person next to you and say, I don't know if you knew it, but you're kind of a mess. Some of you enjoyed that more than you needed to. 
When push comes to shove, and I've had my share of moments, meltdown moments, perhaps you have as well. I believe I'm pretty fortunate that the cameras weren't rolling in some of those moments. Do you feel that way? That the cameras were not there, the photographers were not there. They were not courtside to see the absolute insane and stupid things that I have done over the years when I acted like a petulant child as an adult. Mistake for all the world to see. And yet, in the middle of all of those mistakes, in the middle of our sinful, self-grandizing, self-centered lives, we have a Savior who wants to invest himself in us. That doesn't seem to make any sense. Why would he do that? Well, the bottom line is it's, it's not about you. It's about him. It's not about who you are. It's about who he is. So let's learn about that this morning. Let's dive in here together. Jonah chapter 4, if you haven't gotten there already, it's our last and final week in the book of Jonah. As we've talked about this book, as we've looked through this series, we've done our best to try to reshape what you might call the VeggieTales effect of what's going on when we're looking at this book of the Bible. Because we've got in our mind this, the Bible stories, if we don't have a good context, we haven't read through, we haven't studied ourselves, we have a very small view of what's actually going on here in Scripture. If we only have the children's media version, we're going to miss some things. This story is not about a great fish. The story is about a great God. And I don't know about for you, but for me it has been all about rediscovering God's Word, jumping off of the page as we've looked at Jonah over again. It's not a children's story by any means. There are children who can understand the basic concepts of what is going on in this book, but the themes of the story are so much more profound. There is so much more there that you have to be an adult to grasp them. This is dealing with religious hypocrisy dealing with what looks like spiritual apathy and the devastating effects that it has on us and the people around us and the way that God uses pain and suffering and the awful things that we experience in this world because it's actually out of his grace that he does that. And it works as a severe version of mercy to wake us up. Themes of divine judgment, of divine repentance. How do you explain all of that? to a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old. These are themes that were meant for adults. That's because this story and all of Scripture are aimed at revealing God's nature, God's character to his people. And the purpose of Scripture is not to entertain us or put us to our, our bedtime story to tuck us in at night. That's not what Scripture is here for. No, it's to reveal who God is his character, his purpose, and to realize what he's already up to in this world. So today we conclude our story in Jonah chapter 4. This ridiculous story where this man, apparently sunburnt to a crisp, is sitting outside of the city east of Nineveh. And he is there wanting to die. He would rather die than to live with a God like Yahweh. Remember the big storyline. You've got this prophet 
who has turned and run away, this religious man of God who's been given instructions directly from God, and he turns and runs in the opposite direction. He is supposed to go to Nineveh, but he runs to Tarshish. Actually ends up taking him on a boat, ultimately leading him to ruin. And all the people around him are quite literally in the boat with him as he meets his ruin. God makes him brush with death, takes him to rock bottom. But actually there at rock bottom, it's actually the very best thing that's ever happened to him. <coughs> because of God's extreme mercy, it wakes him up. It wakes him up, at least for a moment. Are we back? Maybe. Then he physically goes and he obeys the commission that he's been given. He physically goes and says the words that he's been told to say, to confront the wickedness that is there in Nineveh. He physically goes, he speaks the words, but his heart is still not in the right place. In Hebrew, there are five words that he says. In English, we get eight words. And all of a sudden, the whole city turns and repents and turns to God. Now, if you were one of the other uh, prophets of the Old Testament, if you were one of the other Israelite uh, prophets, you would say, yes, that's right. They would be stoked. They would spike the football in the end zone. This is amazing what God has done. How God saw how they had repented and how he had shown his love for them. But is this what Jonah does? What's Jonah's response to this? He is ticked. He is livid with anger. How embarrassing. How embarrassing. Pastor Dan talked about this last week, but I want to use it as my first sermon point this morning. It's embarrassing when Jonah's attitude towards God gets exposed. When his true attitude towards God, his true understanding of God, the trueness of, of how he sees all of this playing out, it gets exposed for all to see. Let's read it again, verse 1. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he becomes very angry. He prayed to the Lord. He said, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I didn't want to go. That was what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord responds, is it right for you to be angry? It's embarrassing when Jonah's attitude towards God gets exposed. The truth is we actually love it when God lets us off the hook. We hate it when he does the same for our enemies. We love it when he lets us be free. He loves it when we show us grace. And this actually proves that we truly do not understand what grace is at all. Jonah is still justifying himself. He may have consented to obey God and what God had told him to do. Because he has realized that he cannot fight against God and win. That's what happens when a great fish takes you to the bottom of the sea. You realize that you are no match for an almighty, all-powerful God. But in his heart, he still disagrees. And God knows it. He knows the condition of his heart. Is it right for you to be angry with me, Jonah? Now, if Jonah's going to bring up the compassion of God, he should not be resentful of it, should he? He should be grateful 
Because who has received grace in this story? As we read through the story, who is it that received it? It's Jonah. But Jonah's resentful because he doesn't see himself in this category. Jonah doesn't see himself in the category of someone who needs the grace of God. You might be here this morning and you are in that same category. You basically see yourself as a worthy person, that God owes you good things. And that grace is then shocking to you when God is generous to someone else who you don't believe deserves God's grace. Seeing that happen in the world around you does not sit well with you. How embarrassing. How embarrassing. Jonah's attitude towards God gets exposed. Secondly, it's revealing when Jonah's personal comfort gets tampered with. It's revealing when Jonah's personal comfort gets tampered with. Verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. How many times can we hear this guy say this? But God said to Jonah, is it right for you? Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? It is, he says. I'm so angry, I wish that I were dead. It's revealing when Jonah's personal comfort gets tampered with. Jonah's there on the east side of Nineveh waiting for the fireworks show. He's pretty sure and he hoped against hope that God would follow through with his indictment on the city of Nineveh, that his threat would come to fruition. He knew all about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he wanted this encore appearance of fire and brimstone coming down from heaven, and he wanted to see it. But nothing happened. The only heat was the sun beating down on his own head and on his own back. (coughs) But once again, God shows him mercy. Jonah waited. He was perfectly comfortable there to wait out that night under God's protection. This, This plant that had grown over his head. But what happens the next morning? God tampers with his personal comfort. God uses this worm to take away the plant in order to show what Jonah's true colors are and show them he did. Jonah once again has had enough. Oh, and he is mad. He's mad at God. But this time for the most petty of reasons. Jonah here is furious with God. He says, just kill me now. I want to die because he's uncomfortable. What a petty, petty response. How revealing. (coughs) It's telling when Jonah's great concerns meets God's great concern. 
Verse 10 says, But the Lord said to him, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and then it died overnight. And should not I have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? It's telling when Jonah's great concern runs up against God's great concern. Now we cannot forget, the Assyrians are terrible, cruel, heartless people. As we've talked about in previous week, Assyrian engravings depict people being tortured. The Assyrians were the ones running the city of Nineveh. They, They would wear skulls around their neck to show their cruelty. When they would overtake a town in battle, they would take survivors and they would impale them on stakes in front of the town. After the after the battles, they would pile up their skulls outside of the city so that everyone would know how they were dealt with. There are stories of Assyrian leaders who would often remove the heads of their victims and then put them around their neck as they rode through the battlefield. This is the nation that will eventually invade and destroy Israel in 722 B.C. They are awful people. The truth is they do deserve judgment. They are undeserving of God's grace. They are undeserving of God's kindness. The Ninevites are exceedingly undeserving of mercy, but no more than Jonah. In the New Testament, Jesus tells a parable that most of us are familiar with, a parable about these two sons. One rebels. He asks for influence, and he asks for his uh, inheritance, and he takes it to spend it on loose living. He takes the money and he, he burns it. He, he spends it all. He runs out and has good time with all of his friends. And he finds himself eating with the pigs. And he tries to come back home to his father in repentance. The father has been waiting for him. He forgives him. He gives him clothes. He gives him shoes. He gives him a ring. He throws a big party and he says, this son of mine was dead but now he is alive again. He was lost, but now he's been found. The older son who was there, he stayed behind. He obeyed the whole time. He comes in from the fields to hear this party was going on, and he loses his mind. He's angry. He won't even go into the party. The father comes out. He discusses with him, and he says, All these years I've worked hard for you. You've never once refused to do a single th- I've never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to do. And now when he comes back, we're having a feast. The son who squandered all of your money, all of your wealth, burned it away on prostitutes, on loose living. We celebrate by by killing the finest calf that we have. And the father responds, says, look, dear son, you and I are very close and everything I have is yours. We have to celebrate this happy day. Your brother was dead, but he's come back to life. He was lost, but now he's been found. The gospel writer of Luke is helping it come off the page for us. He reminds us that there was great rejoicing among the angels of God over the repentance of one sinner. So if we look at that in the context of what's going on here in Jonah... 
120,000 evil people have turned and have repented and turned. They want to follow after God. And Jonah, just like the older brother, is standing outside of the party throwing the biggest temper tantrum he possibly can. Because he doesn't believe that they deserve to be saved. What's happening here? You see, Jonah's actually focused on the temporary. Well, God, God is focused on the eternal. Jonah's heart, his mind, his whole focus is on the things that we see every day in front of us. God's heart, God's focus, God's concern is on the things that are much, much larger. Jonah's concerned about the plant over his head to keep the sun off of his head. God is concerned about the sake of the souls in that city. Jonah doesn't get it. How embarrassing. Jonah's uncomfortable. How revealing. Jonah's only concerned for himself. How telling. Then the book of Jonah ends. Maybe you were like me. As I went back and I studied this book again, I quite literally turned the page to go, oh, that is the end. That's, that's all that happens. What am I supposed to do about this? And that's when we realize that this story is not about Jonah. The story is about God. At the end of the day, when push comes to shove, are we any different than Jonah? Are we any different than Jonah? I use this illustration as we started this series. If you've watched a spy movie where there's this big emotional scene at the end between the two main characters and all the SWAT teams have their dots trained in, focused on who they perceive to be the bad guy, then something is said, something is revealed, and all those red dots move from that person, the villain, over to who the real villain is. That's what the book of Jonah does. It moves the red dots off of Jonah. He's not the villain. It it moves those dots onto our own chest, onto our own hearts. If you don't believe me, in the New Testament, Jesus does the exact same thing when he speaks of Jonah. Matthew chapter 12. You turn over to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus used the story of Jonah to, to actually take those dots, move them off of Jonah, move them off of someone else, and trains them on each and every person on this planet. Verse 38, then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, he said, you wicked and adulterous generation, you are asking for a sign, but none will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. When push comes to shove, are we any different than Jonah? The Pharisees here, they are asking Jesus to perform a miracle. Specifically, they're asking him to perform a miracle, a sign that would prove that he is the Messiah. Because all intents and purposes are looking like this man who is healing the sick, 
who is making, he's forgiving sins, that he would be the Messiah. The problem is they're basing this on their own preconceived notions of who the Messiah would be, what the Messiah should look like, what sign he should perform. And Jesus calls them out for it. He calls it wicked and perverse and adulterous because this is just a different form of idol worship. Another generation behaving just like Jonah and the people of Nineveh. You see, Jonah wants to make God into his own image. You see, God, uh, God who simply smites the bad people of the world and he blesses the good people. A God who says, you're the bad guys and you're the good guys, so I want to help you out over here and I want to make sure that you don't hurt anyone else. That's what Jonah wants. The good people, of course, being Jonah and his countrymen. The bad people being the enemies of his countrymen. When the real God, not Jonah's counterfeit version of it, the real God keeps showing up throughout the book of Jonah, Jonah doesn't know how to handle it. He keeps throwing himself into a tizzy and he says, just let me die then. Because he finds out that the real God, the creator of the universe, to him is an enigma. He can't process it. He can't reconcile that the mercy of God would be shown to someone that he doesn't like. When push comes to shove, are we any different from Jonah? When push comes to shove, we desperately need Jesus. Desperately need Jesus. That's not a surprise to any of you. But do you believe it? Verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is Jesus speaking. He's communicating to all the religious leaders of the day. He's communicating to anyone who would listen. And then we get a document here so that we would wake up and listen. The men of Nineveh, he says, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And here's the key. And now something greater than Jonah is here. When push comes to shove, we desperately need Jesus. Today's the biggest day in the NFL. It's the Super Bowl. When push comes to shove, we hear that coined phrase fairly often, but when push comes to shove, under the biggest spotlights, under the greatest focus in all the world, the best athletes in this sport compete for the highest prize in football. But there will be some, maybe not many, maybe just one or two, and it'll make all the difference in the world. When push comes to shove, the pressure will be too much, and they will crumble. And that'll be the story. Friends, without Jesus, we too are all doomed to fail. We will crumble. But God did something about it. Something greater than all of the failures in all of the world is here. Now something greater than Jonah is here, Jesus says. 
His name is Jesus. He is the Son of Man. He is the one who did go down three nights and three days in the heart of the earth. His name is Jesus. The most famous verse in all of Scripture is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus says here, that those awful people of Nineveh, they repented. If you have received Jesus into your heart, if you believe in him, you will see them, the Ninevites, in heaven someday. Shocking. You might say, well, I need a sign from God. That he's the real deal. For most of you, you don't. It's right here in front of you. You're just resisting it. The problem is not in your head. The problem is in your heart. You need Jesus. When push comes to shove, we desperately need Jesus. We all have some push comes to shove types of moments, those fight or flight moments when you must decide what you are going to do, what particular action you are going to take, whether you will be faithful or if you will make the fool's decision to turn and walk away. We see this all through Scripture. As the band comes forward this morning, let me mention a few of them to you. David fought. And he felled a nine-foot giant Goliath, but nothing with a sling and a stone. Later, as he ran to hide hide from King Saul's attempts to kill him, David confessed in Psalm 56.3, What time I am afraid, I will trust in you. When we look back at Scripture, we see Moses as this fearless, mighty man of faith. He marched boldly into Pharaoh's court and demanded, Let my people go. But in Exodus chapter 3, when God initially told him that he would be the one that was going to go in there, he was terrified. God had to push Moses to the point of shoving him to get him to even go in to see Pharaoh. Peter, the rest of Jesus' apostles, when they had that push-to-shove moment, was the night that Judas betrayed him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Early in that evening, they all verbally said that they would be with Jesus no matter what. Yet when push came to shove, just a few hours later, under crunch time, fear smothered their faith. They all forsook Jesus and they fled. But later... Because of what Jesus had done in Acts chapter 2 and and following those chapters, when push comes to shove, these next moments come along. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. They are trusting in Christ's promise to be with them. The faith pushes their fear out of the way and repeatedly they are facing verbal attacks, physical beatings, and they cannot stop preaching Christ because they actually know and understand and believe that he is who he says he is. When push comes to shove, we desperately need Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life.